about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many others, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And continuing on. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. 
John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin? They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Good evening. My name is Gwan. I'm usually at Erco in the mornings, but it's a real pleasure to be with you this evening. Uh, and I usually like to start my sermons with a story. Um, and also, I was searching this week for a story about when you feel like something big is approaching, something you don't know what to do about, and you have to prepare for what's to come. But I think the news and the coronavirus have done that for me. That's sort of all of our stories at the moment. Not to make light of the situation at all, but it almost feels like there's a, a wave coming, a wave we can see up there, and we're sure it's going to have an impact, but we're not sure how big it's going to be. And so, of course, we rush out to buy toilet paper. Um, I'm not going to make toilet paper jokes. My feet is full enough of those. But my workmate, we were talking about it, and he said, it's not like you're going to do nothing about it, right? Right? Even if it doesn't really make sense, even if uh, the news is telling us that there won't be shortages, it'll be okay, we want to feel like we're doing something. We want to feel like we're doing something that will help, that, uh, that we can do to prepare. Sometimes we act irrationally. We want to feel like we've done something more than actually doing something that will be effective. Today in this chapter, we see various snapshots of how people prepared themselves for the coming of the king. And we'll find the people who should have been most prepared for Jesus, most prepared for this savior king, felt like they had done something but weren't actually prepared. If you've just joined us tonight, we're coming to the pointy end of the Gospel of Mark. We're getting to the business end of things. We've been on a journey with Jesus since Mark 1, as he's traveled throughout Israel, preaching about the forgiveness of sins and the kingdom of God, until chapter 8, which is like the hinge in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the chosen one sent by God to save us. And they know that, but they don't know exactly what that means. And so Jesus begins teaching the disciples that he's not a warrior king sent by God to throw off their conquerors, but he is a servant king sent to die as a ransom for many, we heard last week. And to do that, he's moved closer and closer to Jerusalem, where it will happen, where he will die and so in this chapter, chapter 11, he enters Jerusalem. He's here. If this was a movie, the dramatic music would start to swell to tell us that something is happening. Up until this point, we've spent 10 chapters on a few years in the life of Jesus' ministry. And now, chapter 11, we spend the last six chapters of this book on one week in the life of Jesus. Mark is telling us, pay attention, this is important. This week is important. This man is important. Pay attention to how this city prepares to welcome this king. And at first look, things seem good. In verse 2, Jesus employs some first century ride-sharing, gets a cult that has never been ridden. 
It's a sign to those who are looking that this is a king, but maybe not the king that you were looking for, not the king you were expecting, not a king at the head of an army of soldiers, but a king of humility, a king of a servant king, you might say. I was reading this this week, and I remember that when I had read this story when I was younger, I just sort of assumed that Jesus uh, supernaturally sort of booked this animal. He sent his disciples ahead and sort of used his brain to telepathically book a colt uh, to ride. I think it's just as equally likely that Jesus had organized it in advance. He'd uh, paid some people. He'd said, I'm going to send some people to borrow your colt because God works in mundane ways as well. And it seems good as he takes the colt and he rides it into Jerusalem. The crowd welcomes him. They throw their cloaks down. They spread branches on the fields. They are shouting blessings from the Psalms. They're saying the right things. Well, we have to remember as well, this is how they welcomed people for the festival. It wasn't just Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but many travelers, many pilgrims also coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. And it was the custom for crowds to welcome these people as they came in with shouts just like this. And we know this crowd wasn't specific to Jesus because of what happens next. Do you see it in verse 11? Pretty much nothing. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts and he looked at it, around at everything, but since it was bedtime, since it was already late, he went back to Bethany with the twelve. I think this is a little subtle warning from Mark. A warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. It's relatively easy to follow Jesus in a crowd. It's easy to go along with what everyone else is doing and it's harder to follow Jesus when the crowd drops away and you still have to follow him to the cross. And so the next day Jesus goes back to the temple. Uh, There's an encounter with a fig tree, we'll come back to that. But he comes into the temple. If you want to imagine the scene, it's, it's about half the size of Paddy's Market in the city, if you imagine about half of that and just about as busy. Uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, said that one year, a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed for the Passover. That's how much turnover, that's how much commerce was happening in this space. Um, So about half the size of Paddy's markets, and then again, about half that space is sectioned off. So the bigger space is called the Court of Gentiles, and then half that space is, there's three spaces in there, the Court of Women, uh, the Court of Israel, and within that, the Holy of Holies where Israel's most sacred objects were. And dividing one space from the three others was a wall, and on the sign on the wall in three languages, just so you couldn't miss it, no foreigner may enter, anyone apprehended, has only himself to blame for his death. Very welcoming, right? And in that space for the nations, well, it's what you can see there in verse 15. There are money changes, markets to buy sacrifices, a place to exchange money for where you've come from so you have local money to offer at the sacrifice, at the temple. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. In some ways, that's just practical. So you can offer at the temple. But when this place, this temple, is filled with money changes and people selling doves, then, well, there's no space for anyone to worship. And so Jesus comes into the temple and starts turning things upside down, literally turning over the temples of the money changers. Uh, If you're wondering there at verse 16, it's a bit of a weird verse. It mentions in the NIV merchandise. I take it we're not talking about a T-shirt that says, my dad went to temple and all I got was this T-shirt. It's probably more about the temple objects being used for sacrifice. Jesus stops them 
from doing their core business, disrupting the order of the temple. Why? Well, Jesus explains there, using two quotes for the price of one, verse 17. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The first quote there is from Isaiah 56, and it's a prophecy from Isaiah that the time is coming when, here's the full quote, I will bring them, I will bring the nations to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Right? A promise that all nations will be able to come to Jerusalem to worship, to pray to the one holy God. And that second quote is from Jeremiah 7, verse 11, a very different prophecy, a severe warning to Israel not to be hypocrites, not to oppress the foreigner. Here's the full quote. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, this temple, and say, we're safe. We're safe to do these detestable things. Has this house become a den of robbers to you? One quote about what the temple should have been, a sanctuary for all nations to pray, and one quote about what it had become, a den of robbers, a front for people to hide their sin. What should have been a space for all people of all nations to come and worship the true and living God was rented out to money changers for a fee. What should have been a place for the nations to pray had become an animal breeding ground because there was money to be made. And so we see Jesus' righteous anger. And in this we see a sign of what Jesus is here to do to restore the temple to what it should have been, what it was supposed to be. And so, of course, the chief priests and scribes plan to kill him. Now, like most people, when I think of the chief priests and scribes, I think of fitness videos. Uh, public confession time, sometimes I watch fitness videos on YouTube. Certainly much easier than actually doing the workouts. <laughs> and the thing with fitness videos on YouTube is that you start watching and then you see all the other things suggested by the YouTube algorithm, right? All the other fitness videos. And you start to see that one will say something like, get jacked in five simple moves. And then the next one says, get super jacked in three simple moves. And it's this game of one-upmanship. And they're all posed in these super awkward angles to show off muscles that I'm not sure I even have. That is to say, at some point, it becomes not just about being fit, but showing off how fit you are. The performance of fitness, rather than, you know, actually doing the thing. And at some point, for the chief priests and scribes, it became not just about being spiritual, but seeming spiritual. Doing their spiritual reps, if you like, showing off to everyone how super spiritual they are, without actually doing the core of the thing. And so when Jesus comes in and shows to everyone that spirituality is not about these things, not about your spiritual reps, certainly not about making money, well, they react with fear and hatred. In the end, they are prepared for the king, not with worship or with welcome, but with wanting to prove themselves, to show off the spiritual reps by showing him up, asking him questions. And so they lay a trap in verse 28, a trap of a question. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority to do this? It's a simple trap. You see, they want Jesus to say, by God's authority. And then they can say, ha ha, how can you possibly claim to be from God? If Jesus says, by my authority, then 
They can compare their authority, their authority of the temple and the law and their years of tradition and have you seen our spiritual reps? But Jesus is a genius and so he answers them with one question, turns it right back at them. This man, John, in verse 30, was his baptism from heaven or from human origins? And just like that, they're caught in their own trap, caught in a trap of their own devising. If they say his baptism was from earth, then the people, the many people, even from Jerusalem, who'd gone to see John, uh, Mark says in chapter 1, even those people, they aren't going to be happy when they say he wasn't a teacher from God. But if they do say he was from God, then the follow-up is clear, then why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you pay attention to this man that God sent? And so... Uh, they resort to the seven-year-old's answer, very popular in our house. I don't know. Verse 33, the logic of you can't get it wrong if you don't answer at all. Except there's one other flow-on effect from that question that Jesus answered. If John's baptism was from God, well, he's the one who baptized Jesus right at the start of his ministry. Mark 1 again. And when he was baptized, the heavens opened and the Spirit came down on him and a voice came from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. And so why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you prepare the way for this Jesus? Why weren't you prepared for this Jesus? Which brings us back to the fig tree, which was never really about figs at all. I don't know if you noticed it there in the readings. I'm told that there was some discussion about this in Bible studies this week, if you did Mark 11. Uh, on the way into Jerusalem, Jesus encounters a fig tree and curses it. On the way back out of Je Jerusalem, the disciples notice that it's been cursed. It's a bit random if you read it out of context. But this isn't about Jesus' fruit preferences or about him being hangry. Uh, this is Jesus giving us a visual metaphor, a bit of a living parable. Jesus puts these images either side of Jesus coming into the temple to show us something. That just as the fig tree was leafy and seemed inviting, seemed like... It was prepared. It seemed like it should have been bearing fruit. There was nothing there. Just like Jesus coming into the center of Israel, into the temple of Israel, which seemed inviting. The crowds were excited. The teachers were there, and there was nothing there. In the center of the place that should have been prepared for his king, instead he is confronted with a temple that has set itself apart for greed rather than holiness. That just as Jesus should have come into Jerusalem with a royal welcome, he is confronted with a plot for murder. And so just as Jesus judged the fig tree for not bearing fruit, so Jesus judges Jerusalem and all those who do not bear fruit. And if we understand that, then we can understand what Jesus means about prayer in verses 22 to 25. Uh, these are famous verses. You might have heard them before often unfortunately used by people as a way of talking about prayer as a kind of spiritual get-rich-quick scheme, where prayer is a golden ticket that you can use to get anything you want in life, a Ferrari, a house in Sydney, healing for the sick, just pray and you'll be able to get it, they say. And if you don't get it, well, it's because your faith isn't strong enough. You haven't faithed hard enough. You need to get more faith, but I actually don't think that's what he's saying at all. Did you notice why Jesus says this? It's not because his disciples asked him for his five tips on prayer that will blow your mind. It's because Peter said, look, that fig tree's cursed. And Jesus responds by telling them about prayer in relation to judgment. 
Because notice the most important word in verse 23. It's not faith or belief. It's four letters, this. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. And I take it this mountain is uh, the Mount of, Mount of Olives. It's mentioned there in verse 1. And a reference, I think, to Zechariah 14.4. You can look it up later. Zechariah 14.4 is a prophecy about the day that the Lord comes again to be king over all the earth. And on that day, it says, the Mount of Olives will be split in two with half going to the south and half going to the north. And so Jesus is saying in verse 23, if you pray for God's judgment to be fulfilled, it will be done because I am here. So can we ask for anything else in prayer? Yes, we can ask for anything and God will always give us what we need. That is his promise. But it doesn't mean God is a giant Santa Claus who gives presents if we faith hard enough. Instead, though, he gives us the greatest thing in the universe, the thing we need most in the face of God's judgment. It's right there in verse 25, except we usually gloss over that bit. We usually think verse 24 is the high point of the verse and aren't really sure what comes next. But the high point is not that you can ask God for anything, but verse 25, that you can ask God for anything, even forgiveness. That doesn't sound that great. Give me the Ferrari, thanks, we think. But if that's the case, then you haven't understood what sin is and what forgiveness is, I think. That in prayer you can come before the God of the universe, the creator of all things, and have access to him. And not only that, but everything that comes between you and this holy God, every sin, everything that sickens you about yourself, every lie that you've told, everything that you've done against another person, all of that that distances you from this God, God sees it all and God says, I forgive you if you just ask. I see you as my child if you ask. I see you as beloved if you ask of me. Greatest thing in the universe. He doesn't just say the sins don't matter, but they matter so much to him that he sends his son to die for them. This comes about because, not because of us, not because of how deeply we believe, but because of Jesus. And so the question turns around, not are you prepared for Jesus, but has Jesus prepared you for God? Because Jesus didn't just come to clean this temple, but also the temple in here. These temples, our hearts, which were made to worship God, just like the temple in Jerusalem originally. But just like the temple leaders who are so good with filling up that space with other things, with money lenders and other things, we're so good at filling up this space with concerns about money, with the petty things of this world. And it's when it's pointed out to us, we can also say, look at our spiritual reps, look at all the things that we've done rather than looking to Jesus, for only he can turn over the temple inside us. Only he can renovate our hearts to turn them from idols to the living God. Only he can make it a space for the Holy Spirit to live. The greatest thing in the universe if you surrender to Jesus and let him prepare your heart. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. Thank you for sending Jesus that even in our false preparations. You sent Jesus to save us from ourselves. You sent Jesus to turn over the temples of our hearts to be a place where you might dwell.
And so, Lord, help us not to get on with spiritual reps, but to rest in grace, to dwell in hope and understand the depth of our forgiveness. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.